Today's episode is brought to you by Yelp, whose mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping me connect with you, which is totally awesome. Now here we go. To look at who we are, what we value, what are the core components of our aspirations, and, and really finding and searching for that path to get there even now when we're not making a cent. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. I'm Josh Copeland, and on today's show, we chat with Alex Day, proprietor of the world-famous Death & Co., a bar that redefined cocktail culture for an entire generation. The Death & Co. team has been offering a warm embrace to those who shine after dusk for over a decade now. Its foundational elements are a love of great people and great drinks. Here, Alex takes us back to the moment he fell in love with cocktail culture. I think I know the exact moment that this industry was for me and that it was gonna be where I expressed all these various passions and interests that I had. Um, And it was kind of like right at the end of college. I was in New York. I was going to NYU. Pretty much had no idea what the hell I was going to do with my life and had this degree in European studies. You know, that's super useful. Um, Thinking I wanted to change the world with the State Department, but also working in restaurants kind of listlessly, not really with a whole ton of interest. And I remember my friends and I were running around the West Village and we came across this bar um, on the corner of 7th Avenue and Leroy. And it's this little flat iron building. You pop the door open and inside was, you know, jazz coming up the stairs and we walked down and a couple of my friends had been there before. So they knew what they were getting into, but I had no idea. And there was this like thunk, thunk, thunk of cocktail shakers and this entire world that existed. And that bar is uh, one that's still there today. It's called Little Branch. And for me, that was like the moment where this thing that I had been doing, bartending or working in restaurants, either in the back of house or the front of house, I suddenly saw that these people were taking it so seriously, but also having a really great time. They were young. They were kind of otherworldly. They were timeless in a way as both individuals and the product. And like, it just really kind of jumped out at me. And I, uh, I remember like, it wasn't even like a specific drink. It was the the like idea of the drink that they put in front of me and it was and i re- i remember in my sense of memory so specifically the drink that they set down was a gin martini and it like you know that movie ratatouille where he has the bite of the ratatouille and he like the critic like goes back to his childhood and has all these visceral memories it was like a very similar experience for me having that martini not to say i had you know martinis as a kid but like my grandpa always had a martini in the afternoon and it was god awful but it was something that he did every single afternoon and i was then experiencing it in this new way and i think that i, I look back at that in the like the glossy eyes of hindsight and, and think of how powerful of a moment it was because it like brought together uh, history and tradition and, and personal connection with, with this new thing that I was learning and discovering. And um, I, I saw that really as kind of a, a tipping point into focusing on the craft of making great drinks and really beyond that, beyond just the liquid in the glass, like the opportunities that exist within hospitality to connect people to places, to people, to memories. Um, 
and, and all the like great benefit that can come with that. When did you decide you wanted to be an entrepreneur? When did you realize you were an entrepreneur? And what did that <laughs> path look like, right? Yeah, my path to entrepreneurship um, is by probably a pretty typical path. Um, and, and there are a lot of people out there who probably say the, the same things. And it generally sums up in dumb luck or something like fumbling along the way and failing forward. And, and you know, like it's super easy to look back at your childhood and, and pick out these little markers or indications that maybe you have an entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, for me, it was like within music. I, I, I was a musician. I played guitar. I had bands. But I also loved production. I loved the assembly of the thing together into a package. And so I got really into uh, music production and I started like, I tried to start a little business out of it where I conned my dad into like giving me a couple hundred bucks to get a, a piece of recording hardware. Um, and I, and I had to build a business plan to justify it. Cause he's, he's a businessman and, you know, forced me to kind of go through that exercise. And, you know, I had all these justifications out the other end of the money that I would make and the recoup on investment. And like, at the time I thought it was just like, well, this is, this is insane that you're making me go through this, but this is kind of fun. And I kind of now I'm like, wow, damn dad, thanks for, thanks for forcing me to do that. And also what the hell was I thinking that I was like starting a business as a you know 13 year old wanting to record his friends making terrible music. Um, and I, and you know, it's that kind of mentality and spirit that I find as Kismet and other people that have gone on to open businesses, that there was, there's always been that moment in their life or those kind of milestones in their childhood or adolescence or early adulthood where they've, they've had some sort of gumption to take a risk and to put themselves out there and to see what a path looks like. And, you know, when you're successful, it, it, it's a great narrative. Um, but there's so many people who, who either make that leap, but, but don't fully commit to it, um, or don't even make that leap at all. And so I think, you know, it wasn't long after I discovered that hospitality was my thing and that, and that bars and restaurants provided so much of what I wanted to do in my academic career of traveling the world, of teaching, of, 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 of changing the world and changing people's opinions um, and, and doing better in the world, frankly. Um, and it provided an even better opportunity. So the moment I found that out, I, it wasn't long, man, before I just like buckled down and, and, and started asking the questions of, well, well how can I do it better? Who, who is the best out there to learn from and, and how can I forge my own path in it? And it, it's funny looking back at that era too, because we're talking about like 2006-ish in New York City when there were amazing restaurants uh, that were really just kind of pushing the culinary scene. Um, but there were also a handful of people doing it in the beverage space. And I, you know, was lucky enough to be a part of some of those conversations as a super young kid who had no fucking idea what I was doing. And it really speaks to the kind of, uh, I suppose, juvenile place of the industry at that point that, that because I was that right place, that right time. And I had a bit of, um, you know, grit, I guess you could call it that I was able to get kind of ahead of the line, you know, so much harder nowadays to get to where I, I was in those early days. And, uh, and was able to like experiment, frankly, and, and kind of test the waters of what entrepreneurship meant. How did you meet your partners? So I met uh, Dave Kaplan, who's my partner 
And his bar, his business partner at the time, uh, Robbie DeRossi, uh, who's still our business partner to this day, I met them when they opened Def Co. So I wasn't a partner in the beginning. I was working at a handful of places at the time that they opened a place on the Lower East Side called the uh, Lower East Side Toy Company or the Back Room, which was a speakeasy style concept where we served drinks and teacups. I shit you not. Um, but it was also, you know, quite fun. Um, but I had gotten the bug a little bit after my visits to Little Branch in cocktails and was just, you know, I'm obsessive. I just like dive in. I need to know everything. And at that point, there wasn't a whole lot of literature out there. So it was, you know, gobbling up every book on spirits, cocktails that I could. And then, you know, being a troll on eGullet and other forums to learn from all these people just simply inventing the industry um, as they were going. So I was working at a place called Backroom and Lower Side Toy Company. But after I'd gotten that kind of first itch and was exploring and learning as much as I could, I somehow got connected to this guy named Eben Freeman. Um, and Eben worked at a place called WD50, which is a wildly famous and influential restaurant from Wiley Dufresne. And he had in his pastry department, this guy, Sam Mason, who really, you know, where Wiley was pushing the envelope on savory, Sam was doing some fucking crazy cool stuff in pastry and desserts. And he had a vision for a restaurant that really blended and blurred the lines between those two areas in ways that even WD wasn't, wasn't really doing. And, and he tapped Evan on the shoulder to express those same ideas within the bar program. And so I somehow found a slot on the opening team of a place called Taylor in New York, which was short lived. But that was really one of those moments where to me, I was, I was moving beyond the threshold of I'm just bartending because one, I need to pay bills. I'm done with my degree. My parents aren't bugging me enough to get a real job. And three, wow, this is like a real job. And all these people are incredibly smart, methodical, experience have trained every all over the world with the, the most prestigious people in the field and it's and so it was a market to me to take it really seriously and, and learning from Eben I think was one of the motivators for me to pursue working at Death & Co. When it first opened I I, I sat at the bar and um, I, I've probably retold this story so many damn times and, and to people that you know hear it over and over again, it, it seems scripted, but it, it was true. I like I sat there a couple days after they opened. I had a really good friend named Sonia who I was working for, who suggested I go to this bar around the corner from where I lived. I sat down and this bartender, Joaquin Simo, um, served us and 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 something like flipped in my brain where it, whereas like little branch in that, those early days. And I went there that was so motivating. I loved everything about it, but then I was seeing another expression of the same idea, you know, that, they, that you could take something super seriously, but you could also be use, youthful about it. You could be um, so deeply human and, and not to say they weren't at little branch, but there was a different perspective at Death & Co. in those early days, and, and I hope to this day, where Joaquin's personality in serving us was so apparent. And the drinks were awesome, and the room was rad, and it was dark as hell, and it was great, but, but it was really Joaquin just guiding us, not just through one drink, but through a whole experience. And I, and I remember it so distinctly, man, like leaving that night and thinking, I need to work at this place. And so, as I do, a little bit obsessive, I launched a bit of a campaign and found my way to getting in contact with Dave, who 
you know, Dave Kaplan opened the bar when he was super young, um, a couple months before, or even a couple weeks before um, I first stumbled in there. And we started chatting a little bit and I got him to come down to my bar and then we kind of continued the conversation and it took a couple of months, but I was able to, uh, you know, go and pay, patronize death and co uh, a number of times and fell in love with the experience and all the other bartenders, be it Phil Ward, who was the head bartender came from Pegu club, Brian Miller, um, Katie Stipe was behind the bar, Cabell Tomlinson, all these people who were at that point, like already legends in the industry and they really inspired me. And so my determination was more steadfast and I, and I got to know Dave, as I said, and he, he brought Phil down to my bar and the story goes that, you know, Phil took one look at my menu, put it down and said, we're done here. Um, and Dave was all worried because he had kind of put his chips in, in the basket of hiring Alex. And, and Phil just said, you know, anyone who can put that menu together, uh, we, we can't not let them work for us, uh, which was, you know, probably because I think I had one of his drinks on there that he secretly created for another bar. Um, so it might have been a little bit of flattery in that way or, or ego talking, but um, it was definitely a moment where uh, the, the stars aligned and I had some validation that I was doing something right. And I was doing it all on my own, but I was able to kind of meet these folks and get in with them. And over the time when we, we transitioned from, you know, being business partners, but, you know, kind of doing our th own thing a little bit to deciding on a vision and, and wanting to pursue it. And then it was smooth sailing from then on out. Not a problem in the world, right? Oh my God. There's no such thing as smooth sailing. And anyone tells you otherwise in hospitality is full of shit. Um, <laughs> I would say, you know, we today, you know, it's 2020 right now. And we, though we are in the middle of this crisis and we don't have operating venues, uh, we, we have three death and codes and they span between New York, Denver, and Los Angeles, which is our most recent one. And over the years, we've opened a number of other bars with other partners um, and, and done some really kind of incredible things when we look back at them. But I would say up until a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, so much of that was uh, grabbing blindly into the dark of, of not really knowing what we were doing so much as trying to, to get better at it. And I would confidently say, you know, the first, I don't know, half day, decade or more at Death & Co. Like that was barely a business. You know, it was, you know, the bartenders running free reign, myself included, putting whatever we wanted into drinks, like what's, what are cost of goods? Who really cares about that? So long as the place is busy and people are having a good time. And that free license allowed us to create a, 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 an absolute canon of original cocktails, but also not necessarily the greatest business structure. So it, it was bumps along the way of, of figuring that out. You know, <laughs> any restaurateur will tell you that they, you can rely on a, a number of things, no matter what you do, that you're going to have to pay your taxes and that you're going to have a crazy neighbor. And we had ours at Death & Co. New York that made our lives a living hell in those early years. He lived directly above us and had all these false claims and we had, you know, we're in and out of court a bunch. We almost had to close down. We had limited hours till midnight for years. Um, and it was really, 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 really tough, honestly. Um, and at that stage, I wasn't even like running the ship. I was just a bartender there. And, uh, you know, just knowing what my business partner Dave went through to navigate that and, and remain positive out the other side taught me so much about leadership, if I'm honest, you know, like what it means to, 
to to keep a culture together and keep a ship moving even when it looks like doom and gloom which uh you know i can't think of a more prescient um thought in these times what were some of the biggest obstacles and what were some of the biggest lessons learned from those obstacles i think some of the biggest obstacles were learning the business um and and what i mean by that is not you know we we didn't know what we were doing when we started all of this and, and you know i can't speak to dave and ravi in those early days of death and co um but i was around and, and aware and and was kind of along with them as i came up to speed but many of us who were of this era simply had no idea how to run a business and it isn't just about making drinks um or uh, having a good accountant or lawyer. It's about what it means to truly um, run something that has longevity. And I think that was a huge obstacle for us in those early years of finding frustration in slights um, of having, you know, a, a not very strong culture where we would find ourselves continually disappointed by people we thought we trusted. But as we look back on it and, and seeing maybe failure in their part, it was all our fault, you know, that we did not provide the right structure, the right support, the right guidance to allow them to do their jobs. And that was a really big learning lesson and a check on our egos, honestly. And, and maybe just speaking for myself, very much a huge check on my ego where I believe strongly in individuals um, and bringing them into positions of authority and and seeing them fail and and wondering why you know and at first it's easy to blame them and say things these tropes that you hear all the time by frankly bad operators are like there's it's just impossible to find good people and and to this day i think that's bullshit um you know we as leaders as owners as managers it's our responsibility to find and cultivate good people um so so much of the responsibility can lie on our shoulders so i think that that obstacle of of uh, hitting a wall with the people that we worked with um, and learning that it was as much our responsibility, if not more than the responsibility of the individual, um, was an incredibly valuable lesson to learn and one that uh, I feel like I preach on a soapbox as often as I can. We have an opportunity, because everyone's closed at this point, to be reflective. And when you look back on your path, the path of your business, the obstacles faced, uh, the high closure rates, the uh, the terrible margins, uh, the lack of work life balance, does it does it need to be as hard as it is? Is is there a strategy moving forward where we could all live a more sustainable life? The thing about a crisis is that uh, they always uh, expose the faults in the system, right? Um, and, and yeah, you know, we're having that conversation on a larger kind of macroeconomic level right now, but I think that we can answer that question in our own way, uh, individually, you know, like it's the system as it's set up now has so many faults. Um, the, you know, the way in which, uh, hospitality workers are employed and compensated is fucked up. Um, and the way in which many of us in major cities have to bow to sort certain operating expenses, be it, you know, rents that are astronomical, if we want to do this thing we're passionate about, is, uh, is shocking. Um, and I think, you know, I think the sentiment is an important one that we, we need to look at 
what are the hard things? Why are they hard? And are we making them harder or can we do something about them? And a lot of this can be, you know, it, I guess it's really easy and tempting to look at our national leaders as the only voices to make change in this and, you know, and to motivate them for larger systemic changes to the sector of the economy that we work in, hospitality. Um, but it's also on our part to, to look at this as our own faults, you know, the way in which we work and how hard we make this for ourselves and what energy we put into certain things. Um, you know, there's so many of us that obsess over, as an example, the product side of things. You know, it has to be the perfect dish. It has to have all the integrity in the world. The same thing of a cocktail. But we never step back and ask ourselves, is this really what my guests want? And I think this situation is going to force us to not only ask those big kind of systemic questions, but also ask questions of ourselves what our guests want and how we can be nimble out the other side of it. So, you know, I think, you know, not to dodge the question too much, but it's, uh, it, it seems so uh, stratified of, of a question and an answer is that it, it, it applies to literally every part of this. It is, it is how we, uh, how we as operators navigate this situation, but it's also the people that influence us, be it landlords, the government regulations, et cetera. Um, and how the, the overall pie is cut up. Um, because you're right, it's, uh, it's not a good margin business when you look at it, um, especially if you're in you know, the restaurant side of things. Luckily, we're a far more beverage-focused company, um, and our margin is a little bit different than others. But uh, it's, it, will, it will require us, even though we had, I would say, a very strong business before this, to look at every single angle of what we do, not only programmatically, environmentally, service-wise, how we approach our hospitality model, how we handle our vendors, what we, how we interact with our landlords, um, and what our expectations are with our staff. And currently being unemployed and having time to be reflective, uh, are you going to walk out of this with a new perspective? Have there been any aha moments that you said to yourself, well, you know, when we get back to work, I'm going to do this differently or that differently? There have been so many aha moments. Um, I, I, you know, it's being out of work is an interesting way of putting it. I, I don't consider myself out of work. I am not operating right now. Um, you know, there are parts of our business that are uh, still incredibly active, and we luckily are able to have our core operations team nationally together still. And those aha moments you talk about of like, how can we operate better on the other end of it is exactly what we are all focused on right now. Um, and it is really fundamentally, you know, not to be too technical about it, but it is honing ourselves so that we can, can fine tune the way in which we operate so that we are the most nimble we can possibly be on the other side of this. You know, we, we don't know what it's going to be like when each one of our cities opens up. The regulations and restrictions are going to be different. The social norms are going to be different in each one of those. Our relationships with our landlords and our vendors is going to be different in each one of those. And frankly, the local cultures may want different things. So if we are so fine-tuned on the things that we thought we were good at before, but we knew that we had improvement on, on the other end of it, we can be even stronger and more prepared to to hit the ground running, I guess you could say, from an operational standpoint, even if we're not super busy from, from the start. Um, but being, you know, it's like being prepared for a test is how I feel about it. You know, 
one of those tests when, that you had in college that wasn't necessarily multiple choice, but that you had to use your brain and engage it. And that's exactly the kind of preparation that I feel that we're doing right now um, and making adjustments to. That also exists within and you know, like the cultural side of things. Do we want on the other end of this? And these are the big questions we're asking ourselves right now. We ideally want to be an employer that does certain things. We have attempted uh, over the last couple of years to uh, put in certain benefits to attract the best people that we can. We have a kind of aspirational product and we need talented folks. So, you know, all full-time employees have health insurance. Uh, we have wellness credits for people. It's, I'm proud of where we've gotten, but it's nowhere where we want to be. So we're asking ourselves right now, can we rebuild our business model to make the business that we want to be at the other end? That we have an opportunity even for part-time people to uh, have health insurance in its, the current system. Maybe we're going to see a systematic change at the other end of this, I'm hoping. Um, can we offer growth opportunities for people inside and outside of our company in a very streamlined and focused way? So, you know, developing the roadmap for people as an example, I'm a barback and I really want to be a general manager of this place. Here is your trajectory and it's clear and understandable. Um, so those are kind of the big questions that we're asking ourselves to, to look at who we are, what we value, what are the core components of our aspirations and, and really finding and searching for that path to get there even now when we're not making a cent of money. There are thousands of bars in the U.S. But Death & Co. is prolific. And, and I guess my question is, what was, what was the roadmap that took you guys from being a great bar doing great work to a prolific brand? Can you mm -hmm. walk me through that brand strategy and that path that took you from great guys doing a great job to this national brand that everyone knows about and has a book? It is an idea. And it is approach to something that you can be meticulous and focused on ingredients. You can be um, maniacal about your love of something, but you can also be human about it and you can be personal and you can be genuine in it. And that philosophical starting point is where we've gone in, in every aspect of our outward voice. You know, it is physically manifested in our Denver and LA properties while you know, where there is like a, a thread of continuity with the aesthetic, if you will, you know, there's little markers and nods to the other places, uh, but they're not carbon copies of one another and not knocking anyone doing that. I totally understand kind of like the facsimile model, but that's just not us. We want to have a unique menu and unique kind of draw for people to come to each one of our places and explore it. And we were so focused and, and especially Dave on the kind of aesthetic brand level, so focused on making sure that when you picked up that book on a visceral, almost subconscious level, that you got some part of the experience of walking up to the door at Death & Co in New York, touching this ridiculously robust brass um, uh, handle and lifting this massive door open and going into this dark bar. The book is attempting to do that as well. It's this you know, beautiful fabric, cloth cover, black book. You open it, it has weight to it. It has significance. It has gravity. And then the book itself, through narrative, through photo, through illustration, brings you into our aesthetic in, in what we saw as a necessary and very purposeful um, kind of trajectory. And, you know, when we saw the success of that and the impact that it had on people, so like when we saw that, we, we saw an opportunity 
to to bring that voice even louder. And you know, I my, my kind of it's easy to roll your eyes at social media, right? But social media is just a giant and powerful marketing engine. And as we started kind of growing the death and go feed or seeing a good response, we started like looking at, at our, what we were doing, what others were doing, and realizing that it was a lot of kind of bragging or just like kind of throwing out the day-to-day interactions of the bar. And that's not what we're about. We're about like uh, of teaching people, of, of helping them, of growing their skills, growing their engagement. And it was honestly an aha moment for, for us. And I should throw all the credit to my partner, Dave, here, because he really saw the opportunity before anyone else and, and had that light bulb moment. And he saw the opportunity to make social media as a way to really engage our community, to push it forward. Um, because we're not just posting pretty pictures of cocktails. We're, we're sharing our knowledge, be it recipes or how we work. Um, and, and through this crisis, I'm really, really proud of, of what we've done by not just using our feed to you know, generate money for ourselves, but bring in experts from, say, legal counsel in New York to do uh, what we call Ask Me Anythings on our, our stories where people get to ask advice of these people. Uh, we've had a wellness expert recently uh, talking about kind of just mental health uh, in, in this crisis for bartenders. So trying to engage a lot of people. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful these steps that we've made um, to be kind of beyond those four walls of Death & Co are the reason it's uh, become a brand that is respected uh, globally, even if people haven't set foot in our doors. That's beautiful. You have the opportunity to, uh, to speak to the entire industry in this moment. Is there anything you'd like to say? I would say two things. Um, first, look after yourself. Um, this is like almost cliche at this point, but for those of you who are bartenders, um, this is a scary time. And many of you, because I was there once as well, lived a life that had a certain pace to it. It was extremely social. Uh, it involved you know, drinking. Um, or other things um, involves some sometimes you know hazardous uh, experiences, um, but it's important right now when you're lacking that connection to other people that it doesn't uh, doesn't allow you to spiral. And I would say from you know an owner perspective or manager or leader perspective, uh, in the same conversation, it's finding a way to to keep momentum for yourselves. You know, as leaders, we thrive on the chaos, the problem solving, the the opportunities that come with a, a night of service. And when we are lacking those, it becomes very hard to understand ourselves and who we are as people. Um, I think that, that one, one other advice that I would give kind of outside of, of the wellness side of things is um, for, for leaders out there is to keep a connection with your team. I think that the, the people who are going to come out ahead of this situation are the ones that maintain their relationship with the people who, who truly are the gears of the, the thing, of the machine. And if you can, even in some way, lend support to them, of, of dedicate half of your week or a quarter of your week or a couple of hours a week to checking in on people, of asking if they need anything, you may not be able to give financial help right now. You may not be able to give them any answers because none of us have any answers right now, but you can give them an ear. You can give them 
some guidance if they're dealing with some really challenging times. So I, I, I hope that people really see this as an opportunity to find greater value in their people than maybe they did before. That's Alex Day, proprietor of Death & Co. If you'd like to check out Alex's most recent projects, go to proprietorsllc.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp. Full Comp.